Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Holo Holo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. On today's podcast, we are still in the vault here in the month of January, and we will be visiting Black heist films and cultural appropriation. But before Siggy and I catch up, we have a guest on today's episode. Woo-hoo! We certainly do. Welcome, Rechi. Just like how we begin our podcast, can you please start us off and tell us about your immigration story? So my story is a little unique. I don't think you'll hear this one quite often, but I was born and raised in Zambia, Africa. So my parents moved there from to Zambia from the Philippines. What's really sweet is that I always say this, but my daddy stole my mommy and brought her <laughs> to Zambia because they got married in Zambia. And then my brother were born there. So I was a 1980 baby. And then my brother was just born four years later. Then we moved here to Canada in uh, 1989 wow. oh, and wow. have lived here. Born in Zambia, Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Parents were there, there for a job. What brought you guys to Canada? Okay, so to be honest, living there, I don't know if you guys remember this in the 80s, but there in Africa, we were experiencing a lot of difficulties. AIDS was becoming very prevalent. Right. Uh-huh. Violence was becoming very prevalent, kind of due to like different political things that were happening there. Mm-hmm. And what I remember being really young was my parents, when I was first born, it was fine. I could just tell that it was getting more scarier to be there. Yes. And uh-huh. so I think parents wanted to do was to ensure that when me and my brother grew up and went to school, we would go to school in a place where I didn't have to go to boarding school and like leave them. Right. So then they chose to apply and immigrate to Canada. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the challenge, they weren't able to immigrate in 83, 85, 47, or like they kept on trying. Right. And it, mm-hmm. because of their persistence is the reason why I'm here in Canada today. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Because if I think about your timeline, your parents were trying to leave the Philippines as Marcos's end of his corruption regime was occurring and martial law was in effect. So we left because of that regime. Is it fair to say that your parents left because of that regime too? My gut's telling me yes. And just like maybe trying to find opportunities for them outside of whatever they were going through experiencing back home. And then it is incredible, your story of persistence, because it's interesting that there were multiple applications to get to Canada. And yeah. in the 80s, Canada had tightened their restrictions on Filipinos, and there was almost practically a moratorium on them. So the only way the Filipinos could actually come in at the time was either through the domestic worker program, or you had to get the points in their point system to be able to do that. So to me, your family has an incredible, incredible story of resilience and perseverance to be able to get here. Yeah, very inspirational for me. And I think I just learned this over time, but their story is like, it makes me appreciate where I am every single day. Yeah. Know how hard. And then I see all the things that I've benefited from as a result of their persistence. And I will never forget that yeah. ever. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Zambia for the first eight, nine years of your life? What do you remember of that? You know, from zero to five, you're probably just not, don't remember much. But from six to just before you move in 89, there must have been some memories that you still recall. I remember a lot, actually. Do so, you? Yeah, tell us. So school was very different because our school system, like here, we started like eight till four, but back there, school was very early in the morning and we were pretty much done just after noon. Mm-hmm. So our school, we had to take a bus every morning and go to school every day. And we had a very small community of Filipinos. So I think just in oh. my name, yeah, it was really cool. Like we took a bus together. There were quite a handful of Filipinos. So I was always surrounded by Filipinos and other cultures, obviously. Right, right. But we would take the bus to school every morning. And I remember it was very formal. It's a British colony. So we all wear uniforms. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Really cool about our school is you get put into a color. I swear it's like Harry Potter. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) You get sorted. Yeah, get sorted. I swear. I was yellow. So yellow were always known for like being studious. And then red were always really good at sports. (laughs) Like I swear, like we had (laughs) colors. I swear. It's like. I believe it. I believe it. So those were the kind of fondest things I remember. It was a very, very, our school was so hardcore. And I say that because by the time I got here, I remember having to like switch my grades to a different grade. And then a lot of the Mm. stuff I had to almost like wait for the classes to catch up to what I knew. And was, yeah. So mathematically more advanced. Mm. Oh, do you remember you learned how to handwrite? Yes. So imagine I had to learn how to print like, because I had to undo all of my schooling from Zambia. I think what I'm trying to say is my memories were just having to really readjust to the Canadian culture. Right. And we only had one TV. Imagine this one TV channel, one. One. And kids TV were first thing in the morning for Mm. like one or two hours. That's it. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. We had the dial telephone that goes. (laughs) (laughs) The rotary dial, right? The rotary dial. (laughs) Like culturally, I mean, then I come here and I'm like, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, because I arrived here in December. Of course. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Best month to come, right? And so, That's that white stuff. Yes. Like, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> and why is it so cold? It's so cold. Why is yeah. it so cold? Oh my goodness. And so growing up in Canada, obviously acculturating, you grew up in Mississauga. I grew up in Scarborough and Siggy grew up in St. Catharines. And even though we all are within a hundred kilometers of each other, it's still a different world sometimes. Being Filipino in Mississauga is, and Filipino being in Scarborough is still different. Oh, yeah. right? So what do you think is the difference in terms of growing up in Mississauga and being Filipino? Compared to Zambia? Or just in or general? Just in general. I mean, we can also go back there, too. Because what I also <laughs> wanted to know about Zambia, too, was small community. It sounded like you were with a number of expatriates. I also mm. wonder, too, like in the greater Zambian society, I'm thinking to myself, like, you can't help but know that you're different even more so. Or maybe it's the same. I don't know. Um, okay, so culturally, I can tell you that they treated expatriates very well. Yes. Oh. So they saw us as being of great value and everywhere we went everyone knew that we weren't from there so they treated us like gold the zambians treated us well like they always had such high respect for us that was like something i will never forget they all took care of us it was just an unbelievable culture to grow up around Mm. we always got treated really really well and I'll never forget the way that they kind of like always took care of us. It's hard to explain. It's like going on vacation, you know, yes, like yes, yes. have you ever gone away and get treated the same way? Like they highly respect you. Um, they take care of you, whatever you need. It was just a really good place to grow up. Oh, wow. Culturally, you know, when you had family parties and you invite your cousins, for us, we yes. didn't have blood family. So our neighbors that were Filipinos became our family. And a lot of them also immigrated here to Canada. Just here alone in Mississauga, there's about 26 families that came from Zambia. Wow. Oh, cool. So we have, yes. I grew up like my cousins, Yes. blood cousins, they yes. were always my family from Zambia. So there's like a hidden community. There's a hidden, legit, like I, my Zambians, straight up, I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah. There's like a hidden community. Hidden. Oh my gosh. I might be asking too much of a personal question here, but when you travel the world and people open your passport. That's right, what I was going to ask. <laughs> you know, and it says Zambia, Africa. What is the reaction from border officers from around the world when they open up your passport and they see this? So they open up a Canadian passport they see born Zambia, Africa. They look at your face. They look at your name. What goes through their head? What is your experience? My experience is, is, is that when I'm in the Philippines and they see a Canadian passport and they hear how I talk, yeah. they're projecting stories onto me. And then I get interesting or oddest exchanges with people because you can tell that they're trying to figure out my story. What happens to you like when people... I've been told legit, you're not black. And I said... Oh. I've been legit said that to my face. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, they have this like confused face. That's almost like, I don't get it. Explain this to me right now. Oh my <laughs> like, gosh. I yeah. want to travel with you. I, I <laughs> so want to travel with you and, and hear how like people, oh my God. So then what do you say? Like when people say astonishing things, like you're not black. 
I actually have an, an airport elevator speech already. So, <laughs> so I just tell them honesty. I'm like, both my parents are Filipino. So I have to like clarify my story to them. And then they go, oh, well, see, that makes sense now. I'm like, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. But they didn't have the narrative in their head. You just don't get it. It's hard yeah. to sum up. And then now there's at least a minimum of 20 Filipinos via Zambia, Africa, (laughs) right? That are Canadians have all kind of grew up in Mississauga. We talk about this all the time. Every time we talk to more and more Filipinos or Filipinac around the diaspora, it's like, we are really not a monolithic culture. We are not, culture, exactly. Right? Well, and, you know, and I love hearing about your experience because it's like, wow, your story of perseverance, your family, kind of their perseverance to get to Canada, trying to flee unrest to then get to a place to then realize that it's like now there's unrest and destabilization going on and then wanting to come and then doubly appreciating this idea of stability and having gratitude for being in Canada. And I also like too, whatever, there's a lot of similarities. Like my family, when my parents came to Canada, they didn't have relatives. But the Filipino community that they met, those people became my cousins. And that type of story that you created, thats it's very similar to my parents' immigration coming story coming because they were the first of their family to come, but they created a family with the community they found. So Amazing. So tell us a little bit about growing up in Mississauga. <laughs> so I grew up in Mississauga. First, like straight up, the adjustment to Canadian culture was it took time. Some of the mm. words that I would say didn't quite translate. British English is different from Canadian English. I need to give you some examples because then you'll understand my pain. Yes. In elementary school, I would literally say, can you pass the rubber? <laughs> As opposed to the eraser, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have gotten in so much trouble. Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> I got judged bad because of that one. That one was a classical or just things like, can you open the boot, not the trunk right. or just yeah. like really subtle just the culture. So I think for the first few years growing up in elementary school, it was a challenge for me to adjust culturally, but you know, mm-hmm. I kind of got the hang of it, mm-hmm. which was really good. Growing up in Mississauga, I would say it was a true blessing because I was privileged to be surrounded by a lot of amazing Filipino, again, first generation families who moved here Mm-hmm. So I would say that I was surrounded by a lot of support. And if it was not for my parents building such a strong relationship with so many different Filipino families, they would always be isolated and alone. But no, right. that was not the situation. We were constantly meeting with a lot of, you know, when you hang out with your yes. relatives, you're going to other, each other's houses and yes. birthdays. And <laughs> I was constantly surrounded by lots of family and a lot of love. So growing up in Mississauga was such a great, experience to be honest and even though we moved a lot I would have to say the strongest influence I had was just constantly being around family oh and it's funny how we find family because that's a primary orienting value of being Filipino or Filipinac right it is and you look forward to it the amount of time you'd spend like at birthdays like you catch with everybody it's like what you do now and and imagine as a teenager you're transitioning so I always found such a comfort knowing that I was going to like connect with like my aunts and my kuyas. I feel like that has to be, and my parents were really strict, like super strict. So (laughs) So I would have to say like family is kind of what kept me very, very sane. Yes. 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 Amazing. Amazing. Now, like anyone that follows you or knows any of your socials or if we were to ever figure out where to link up with you online and stuff like that, you have this kind of story of being in the corporate world and then doing a hard left Mm -hmm. and then pursuing creativity. Tell us a little bit about that in terms of your journey there. Hey, I I know we only have like an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Take your time. Take your time. It just means that we have to have you back on the show. Like that's what it means. So. I followed a very specific path all my life. I checked off all the boxes. You yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. I did it because that's all I knew how to do. Right. I school, you graduate, you get a job, you start your career, and boom, I had ticked off boxes, got mm. married, had kids. I ticked everything off. And, oh, but I ticked everything off and I was like, okay, but, you know, why am I feeling just like, still missing something or okay so you've done everything but like now what and I hit this point five years ago where I was just feeling like 
as much as I accomplished everything I was told and I achieved all these things that my parents told me you'd achieve, I myself wasn't truly happy with it. And I knew deep down inside that the one thing that was had always held me back was my inability or my I was suffocated to the point where I was not allowed to be my true self mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was to be creative. I was strongly rejected since a young age for any display of creativity other than what my parents defined for me as being okay, like playing the piano. If it wasn't, the minute I showed that I had wanted to do something other than what they approved, they rejected me. They told me I wouldn't be accepted. They told me that you would never amount to anything. Mm -hmm. They put so much fear in my mind that I believed him because, you know, like I get it now. Mm -hmm. Well, anyways, long story short, Five years ago, I knew that this thing in me, I wasn't able to fulfill it. So I tried everything, photography, dancing, anything creative, just to get me connected to it again. Mm-hmm. It was so disappointing when I would try something and then it scared me so much. I like would always go forward and mm-hmm. backward. I kept sliding back and forth. After several cycles of that, it was actually baking that was the very thing. I still remember it connected me back to my creativity in a way where I could just flow and be and it was baking my daughter's first birthday cake Mm -hmm. uh, that made me reconnect to something in me that mattered and something in me that meant something and so the creativity journey for me started five years ago her first cake on her first birthday and I mean, Jazzy, you mentioned it. Like, if you go onto my profile, you can see that that's all I'm doing now. But yeah. trust me, this is like a five-year journey of mine of slowly releasing 35 years of suppression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you would agree with this or not, Richie, that being Filipino or being Filipinex, there are certain acceptable ways of being creative. Like I loved how you referenced, like unless you were playing piano, piano like, yeah. you couldn't be creative and that there are noble ways of being creative and others. It's like, no, Anak, don't do that. If you did, it would be like, how can you make a career out of overacting or being dramatic or, or something along those lines? I have two cousins, Chell and Rani, who are creatives through and through. One's a journalist. The other is a social media influencer himself. And like, I could just see my titos and titas, like their brains kind of explode, not understanding that creativity looks something more than an armor solo painting that you would see in the Philippines or playing <laughs> piano and for Elise in, in the background. I guess I just wondered that too. It sounds like you experienced a very kind of narrow idea of what noble creativity looked like and anything past that. It's like, how can you do that? But I'm glad that you found the courage and that you're able to bring your full self to what you do on a daily basis. That must feel amazing at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I still held myself back because I still did the full-time job. Guys, I was hustling. I was working full-time. I did corporate. I was doing everything. And as much as I loved it, it was like, okay, like, when am I going to surrender truly to myself? Yeah. Surrender. And that's the real word. So this year I surrendered and I said, no more, no more being defined or being held back by another institution or another big monstrous thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, just be you and you'll figure it out. And I had to just, it took so much to just trust me, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it and I've been doing it now since February, March. And life is good because I'm finally just listening to my own voice. And you know what I say to people that I meet in terms of trying to be their more authentic self is, is, is that Filipino parents will worry about money and stability. And I'm of the opinion that if you pursue what you're authentically meant to do, people will throw money at you because <laughs> you do it well. You know, you should have seen Siggy two years ago when he ate your first crinkle cookie. Oh my right? God. Like ube crinkle. So he was like buttery. It's like, guys, this is amazing. And it was around this time. It like, was exactly like two years time. ago. Yeah. I went to your pop-up. I was like so amazed and it was like, oh, I'm going to Ottawa. I'm going to buy all this stuff because I'm going to go see Sigs. Sigs, here you go. The cookies that you shared at Filipino Heritage Month with me. Like, oh, my God. It's so like, good. oh, my God, I need some more as I think about it. As you bring your authentic self, success, 
fame, status, money, wealth, whatever, all kind of comes. And and I think that that's sometimes when I talk to my titas and titos, the older generation, I try to tell them, like, if you encourage everyone in the younger community to just follow what they're authentically meant to do, aren't we just looking for happiness and success? And I think that if we all agree on that, wouldn't we be a much more, even happier community than we are now? Anyways, I think you're living proof of that. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Absolutely. It was powerful. I can't wait to ask you more. Like when you come back, as you said, like we only have like an hour to get through. Usually at this point in the podcast, we kind of check in kind of pop culture wise in terms of what you're doing. Let's start off with you, Richie. We're like, yeah. what have you been kind of doing pop culture wise? Everyone that has a Netflix account knows like you pretty much watched everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've watched everything. Yes. So I've moved on to Amazon and I think all I'm generally trying to say is like, I was so reluctant to get off Netflix. I was so obsessed with it for so long. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you disconnect from something and you give something a try, you know, I sat there so reluctant and like turned on this, like, you know, a few shows. I was like, whoa, there's a whole world outside of Netflix. Right. Type thing. Oh, yeah. Giving like Amazon Prime basically a, a try. And there's mm-hmm. so many amazing shows on there from growing up and I'm obsessed with Netflix quality of television, but I would have to say Prime's game is strong. I was like, whoa. So if you do hop on there, like give it a try, like definitely worth your while. Cause it's a whole other spectrum of shows that you don't, it's just very, very different. If we were to kind of look into your Prime feed list, like what would it say the last thing it was that you were watching? Oh, Saved by the Bell. Ah! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I would totally be watching that. Oh my God. This is what I'm talking about. Okay. So I'm like, Saved by the Bell. Like, how can you take something from me? That's my like, like, again, reluctant. I'm like, I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hate it. Turn it on. Yes. Yeah. I was so shocked by everything because it had all the goodness and cheesiness of Saved by the Bell, the OG series. Yeah. Came back as the real cells. That mm. was cool. But then they also added all the things that make us great now, like diversity. But yes. then they reference all the current things that are going pop culturally. I'm just so freaking impressed by... Anyway, so now I'm obsessing over the show. You know, I just can't watch it fast enough now. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Sigs, what have you been up to pop culture-wise? Well, since we're returning the vault, and Reggie, that was so on point, the reboot of Saved by the Bell has been getting amazing reviews. Like, people yes. are loving it. I've been listening to a podcast that's called History of the 90s. I'm hosted by Kathy Kenz, who I think is Canadian. Mm. And yes. they just dropped an episode on boy bands. So they talked about, like, <laughs> Lou Pearlman. They talked about Backstreet Boys and saying oh And it was such, like, a throwback. And the whole series is everything from the 90s, whether it's something like, like the movies of the 90s, the AIDS crisis and such. It was really, really good. But this episode that they just dropped this, like, past Thursday was really, really funny. And I was like, oh, my God, the 90s just brought me back. And they talk about, like, the horrible stuff that per- Lou Pearlman did and oh, yes. the BSB is. But the other episode that sticks out in my mind, and this is just for the listeners, have you ever heard of the Tracy Latimer case? Remind us. what The, the Tracy, Tracy Latimer, Latimer case is a child that had disabilities, and it was basically whatever, there is a case, and father was charged in her assisting her death. Mm. And she's a person with disabilities. I have a younger brother who has cerebral palsy. And I remember growing up and my mom keep on talking about and watching about this Tracy Latimer case. And they really give a good lens and just the explanation of it and everything. I just, it was very intriguing. And I I remember like earlier this year when I was listening to it in early 2020, when we actually went to work on my commute. And I was like, oh, this is such an interesting take and gave all the sides of currently what's happening with Tracy's father and just the seriousness of the case of why it was so controversial. But yeah, it's called Podcast The History of the Nine. Hosted by Kathy Kens. Take a listen if you want. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? It's winter. I've been kind of in one of these magical fantasy moods. Typically, most winter, it's like there's all these tentpole movies like Harry Potter, Star Wars, where it's just big fantasy films. And I've been kind of in that mood. And so I've been watching Lock and Key on Netflix. Now, I know that came out last last February. So I'm just catching up now, unfortunately. But nevertheless, it is an interesting show about a family of three kids with a deceased father who travel back to Massachusetts to discover a house that reveals 
those keys to them that are magical and there's a mystery to be solved in all of this and it feels like the chronicles of narnia meets the charmed (laughs) ones in some ways so and then interesting part is to me it's always an exercise of like oh look that's filmed in toronto like guess where that is it's like oh look that's humber college or oh look that that's some place outside of the gta so it's been fun to watch and i totally burned through it this past weekend so that's kind of what i've been up to pop culture was unlike you two which have been like really been kind of taking to heart our back in the vault month in january here like looking at the 90s that's kind of very much what our topic is today so listeners out there we had sent richie myself and siggy on assignment to review some black heist films so interestingly enough (laughs) richie and siggy both came up with the same film in terms of what they were going to review and kind of remind so maybe we'll start off with you guys in terms of what did you guys both select and then start telling us about it in terms of your experience. Maybe we'll start off with you first, Richard. What did you guys both select? So we selected Set It Off because it's Set It Off. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Are you guys the same way where you watch a movie and you're like, I swear I watched this. So there's memories of it, but then you're like, you're watching a new movie all over again. That's exactly it. Did you rewatch it? Like I rented it on like Sunday. Did you watch it just before like us recording, Richie? Had to because... When I read it again, I'm like, but I watched it, but then it was so long ago. No, I really needed to refresh my memory. Same. I had to rewatch it. And plus, it's just such a classic. Like, my husband's like, yeah, set it off night, you know? And he like, <laughs> down. You know, anytime, because him and I, like, we're both 80s babies. So anytime we have an opportunity to, like, do throwbacks, this is like our date night. It's made yeah. it a thing, you know? <laughs> and then, so we watched it. And this movie, because, you know, like, they're so talented I mean, all the stars like Vivica, yeah. that's them and their baby prime. Yeah, that's-, that's exactly what I was about to say. It's Jada Pinkett Smith, but Jada Pinkett, like baby Jada Pinkett, fresh from the yeah. different world. You're like, you see their talent and they're still young and you know their careers now and how much they've grown. My point is, it's just, I was so taken aback because I'm like, damn, like their talent. I forgot how powerful they were and the women in that movie. Exactly. Amazing. So first of all, I was totally pleasantly surprised and nice to watch like people that we grew up watching now mm. and how amazing they are. So that was probably first off the first thing that was amazing about the movie. And then like, as I was watching, relearning about their storylines again mm. and how tragic it was, it took me back to the first time I watched it. And this movie was made 24 years ago. Right. That's correct. I'm like, but wait a minute, it's happening now. Mm-hmm. And exactly. I think that's what hit me. And I'm like, shit, sorry. No, uh, you can't. It's, you can totally swear. It's okay. We do have an explicit rating on our oh. podcast. Makes us sound <laughs> saucy and very, you know, woof. <laughs> I'm not going to edit that out in, yeah. in post, right? So. Oh, like, shit, nothing's changed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find, Retchy, like literally, and listeners or whatever, if you watch this movie, it's literally the first 10 minutes is like a definition of what systemic racism is. Mm. Yeah, there were parts that were hard to watch again because I knew it was going to happen, but I really wanted to sit there and noodle in it, if that makes right. any sense, because yeah. the reality is this is still happening today. I started to have this whole other level of empathy that I had before, but even though there's all these movements that have happened since then, mm-hmm. the anger and the frustration that they feel, I feel watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Like nothing's changed. Yeah, there's anger there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was watching this and I started to feel angry yeah. and frustrated. Like why? Right? right. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many tragic stories interwoven and it wasn't one of them. It wasn't two of them. It was all of them. That's right. They're all experiencing racism in their own individual lives. And then you saw how it led to their decision making, which then also then led into tragedy. And I'm like, holy smokes. So I think watching this movie made me realize that so much hasn't changed, number one. And the one word that really stuck, I don't know why, I, I couldn't go to bed. I was watching this movie. I'm like, oh, my God. It's this word of, of mistreatment. Mm-hmm of each other the way that they were treating each other mistreatment of themselves as a result of their experiencing and then 
somehow I started to feel all this empathy with what they could have been going through because all their lives, that's what they knew. Right. And it had such a huge impact on me rewatching that movie again. Yeah, so I'll just pause there. <laughs> I'm sure you have other thoughts as well. Yeah, see, what was your experience in terms of watching you Set It Off? You summarized it. And I just laugh because when I'm like, oh, I'll watch Set It Off. And I'm just thinking of En Vogue and the song Don't Let Go Love. And I was thinking, oh, Blair Underwood <laughs> and Jada Pinkett Smith. And then literally Sunday, the first 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, like you're right empathy mistreatment like this is the definition of from 2020 and the black lives matter george floyd brianna taylor the issues that are going about anti-racism these are examples of like what is systemic racism this is it these are the things that people are shouldering on and it's 24 years ago you could lift that whole movie and play it now and be like this isn't any different and that's the shocking part where i was like where it didn't sit well with me either i'm like holy smokes that's still happening. And listeners, if you haven't seen Set It Off, basically it, it's a heist movie where four people played by uh, Queen Latifah, Cleo, Vic, Vivica A. Fox, Frankie, Jada Pinkett Smith, Stoney, Kimberly Elise, TT, four women living in the same neighborhood trying to basically get the money they need to, in order to live their lives because they've been screwed by the system, whether it be Stoney in a heartbreaking loss of her brother and a mistaken shooting, Frankie losing her job just because she is black and she's associated to someone, a robber that held up the bank she worked at, and poor Titi that was a challenge because her son was taken away from her. And these women put their heads together to say, what can we do? Let's know the bank system and let's pull off a heist to get the money we need to live better lives and just to survive more likely. It really sat with me. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is still prevalent. And it's shocking. Like Reggie said, 24 years ago, it's 2021 now, and those issues are still prevalent. The main line that I remember from the movie is the quote, we'll just take away from a system that's fucking us all anyway. That mm. just really resonated with me. But oh, Reggie, I totally agree with the things you said. I thought, oh yeah, pretty light. But I'm like, whoa, first 10 minutes, bam. Right. What are we presented with? And almost more shocked than I had thought it was going to be. Wake up in yeah. some ways is kind of what you guys are both talking about. I would say that I had the same experience too. My selection listeners was Jackie Brown, which was in 1997. This particular movie starred Pam Greer, Samuel Jackson, Robert De Niro, Robert Forster, a really young Bridget Fonda. I love her. Actually. Love her. Love, 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 love Bridget Fonda. When I saw Bridget Fonda, I'm like, Bridget Fonda, I love you. Okay. Yeah, and then Michael Keaton, and it was a heist film of who's playing who. Ultimately, it, it is this aged flight attendant played by Pam Greer who gets caught by ATF, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, I think is what they, that stands yeah. for, you know, in the United States. And in all of that, they apprehend Jackie Brown, who says that she's going to help them catch the person that she was asked to shuttle money for. As I watch it, in the first 10 minutes, there's this whole whole intertwine between Chris Tucker, who has a guest appearance at the very beginning, and in Chris Tucker fashion and Samuel Jackson, they're having like this whole repartee about what it means to kind of live in Compton and using the N-word and the police are all about. And it was just interesting. It was just, oh my God, this is about police brutality. We've been hearing about this for the last 23 years. And here we are still talking about police brutality. And except just between these two black characters, it just floored me. And I just like in the first 10 minutes, it was like, oh my God, like I totally forgot about this. I totally had amnesia around this. I couldn't believe I had amnesia around it. I will say, kind of like what you said, Richie, that you see things, you only remember certain parts of it, you remember it. I remember it just being very slow film. And I remember reading the reviews afterwards and everyone was kind of, if they had a critique of it, it was the fact that it took a really slow pacing, which is, was very different for Quentin Tarantino at the time. And what I remember was the music, just kind of like you, Sigs, around mm -hmm. kind of like remembering En Vogue for Set It Off. I just remember mm -hmm. all that soul funk, that wah-wah guitar. Stylistics, yeah. <laughs> yeah, st stylistics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It was just incredible how it still was relevant to this day. And I, I couldn't get over that, like right till the very end. It, this woman really trying to make off with the money at the end of the day. Kind of similar. It's like the system has screwed me over. What am I going to do? And is it right? It's degrees of right or degrees of wrong or however you want to talk about it. People just searching for justice. When I kind of think about these heist films, they're kind of about justice at the end of the day. 
what I wanted to say about Set It Off, right, was my quintessential memory of it was actually constantly always looking for it to rent to people because I used to be a customer service rep at Blockbuster Video. <laughs> and so people would come into my location. They'd like, do you have Set It Off? And I'm like, no, actually, it's out right now. We had something like 30 copies of Set It Off, and it was always constantly rented out. And when I finally got to see it, it was it blew me away too at the time. If you ask me to kind of recall the story, like I'm kind of like, I only remember bits and parts of it just kind of what you guys are talking about like this observation that unfortunately these issues are still around why haven't we moved forward and of course I think that there are obvious reasons for that especially since George Floyd's murder and the cultural zeitgeist about that but I don't know if you guys have any other observations as to why like we haven't been able to kind of move forward from these themes as a community as a society as a whole you know I do have a comment more around the fact that we grew up here in Canada mm. versus what it's like to grow up in the U.S. Right. So I would have to admit we're already in a different territory because the way we're brought up here in Canada is we're fortunate enough to have a government that fully supports us in terms of the multiculturalism. There is so much diversity and appreciation of diversity in our country projected mm. in so many different ways. I'm not saying it's completely gone here. But I'm Mm -hmm. saying it compared to my cousin's stories in who live in the U.S. are very different than mine growing up. Right. I'm not saying we don't go through it here. I'm just saying I just have to acknowledge that in Canada, we go through a totally different culture than what it could be like in America. So I I can't speak to what my cousin's experiences are. I think what I was going to say overall is just the movements that have begun are what have been needed. The reason why I say that is If we're reacting to these movies, and that happened 24 years ago, dramatic needed to happen. Yes. Because the Black Lives Matter, that is not just a movement. It has changed the way we look at everything now. It has had to be blatant. It has had to be bold because hatred is not something that just goes away overnight. Racism comes from ignorance, hatred, Mm -hmm. and these really dark places, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the movements have to continue for this to be addressed. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. We can't dust this under the rug. We have to constantly talk about it and raise awareness to it. February, in our next set of episodes after this, we kind of come back to our solidarity episode. Very excited to kind of continue to talk about that. And I think it has to be a constant discussion. And I'm glad to see movement now. What's amazing is how fast that movement is. And I think with the eyes that we have now really being woken up and then watching these films and thinking, oh, these messages have been around for the last two decades, if not more. It's just kind of shocking. You know, I was thinking about Jackie Brown for a second and that kind of first interchange between Samuel L. Jackson and Chris Tucker around police brutality. I was like, I heard it but I didn't really hear it until 2020. Like, isn't that interesting that these messages have been there, but we're only just hearing that now. I think you're right. Like our countries and where you're located in this world will allow you to hear it more or less, depending where we are, but it's being said there. And it just makes me think about kind of how we try to magnify the messages coming out of black culture, which is this is that these things are happening to us. Anti-black racism is happening. And yet at the same time, what ends up happening is this is that some of what they say ends up getting appropriated, which is kind of like what today's culture capital topic is. For those of our listeners that might not know what cultural appropriation is, it is usually the borrowing or using another culture's significance in terms of music or art or history to one's advantage. And I just remember growing up in the middle of Scarborough where I had a lot of Filipino friends take on black culture as part of their expression or high school expression. I don't know if you guys had that experience kind of growing up. Go ahead, Ziggy. Oh, yeah. You know what? Yes, in the sense of some parts of the culture. When I think of my high school or whatever, I think there was, in my grade, there was like four other Filipinos and myself. And I think there was parts of the culture that was really admired. And I want to say that the music was a bit of an influence, but Mm -hmm. as major appropriation, like like I have a relative that he was really into menace to society and all that stuff and reciting all the lines and everything like that as, and doing that as for any, like more, not as much as I've seen. 
I've seen it, not directly, like, in my peer group. And I had, I think, from the populations where you guys are, where there are more Filipinos or whatever, you probably saw it more than I did. I would have to say, even in my sister's generation, yeah. who's, like, four years younger than me, her generation certainly adopted a lot of Black culture. They listened to a lot of R&B and rap. And not hip-hop, but hip-hop. Yeah. Like, true hip-hop. Is like, what the origins, were, yeah. It, and it was just kind of interesting just seeing them adopt it and adopt mannerisms and stuff like that. So when I was watching kind of Jacking Brown and some of the mannerisms and ways of talking, it also brought me back to high school thinking, I remember friends trying to adopt that way of speaking. And What about you, Richie? Growing up in Mississauga, did you hear any of that or did you see any of that of Filipinos trying to adopt or appropriate Black culture? I fully did. Uh-huh. And the thing is, so back then... That was the golden era and the emergence of hip hop music culturally. And I was so incredibly influenced by it. So let me explain. This is very layered, Mm -hmm. but here we go. So I love hip hop. I love R&B. I looked at all of those amazing artists. I just wanted to be them. Right. And I dressed like them. I wanted to look like them. I had source everywhere. Like I, I, oh my God, source. I took my allowance, yes. bought and the magazine's like this big, guys. It wasn't like the rinky dink. Like it was oh my full, gosh, like the full out pages with the gorgeous, yeah. Pages out, they were all over my wall. Mary J, everyone yeah. was out of my wall, and because of the influence of listening to their music, my slang completely changed. Like even some of it, I it's totally still exists today. Yeah. I picked it all up and. I lived and breathed it, but that's because the first connection to it was the music. Mm-hmm. But then, hold on, it was all strategic. We were just talking about the movies. Right. Then they got really smart from a marketing perspective because they took my favorite artists. And then when a movie came out, it wasn't just about the movie. It was about the soundtrack that oh, was yeah. layered. Yes. In. And then all of a sudden, I would love the movies, then love the music that connected to the movies. To be honest, like I was fully engulfed into the culture. And that was pretty much all of high school, I would say. Looking back now, what do you think the purpose was in terms of immersing yourself in all of Black culture? I saw myself in them. Mm. Their stories, when they sang music, I connected more to the music and the lyrics and what they were going through. So how do I say this? A lot of music at the time was very on the surface. Hip-hop and R&B, when they talked about love, like, it was love, right? (laughs) Yes, it was love, right? No, exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) I struggled a lot. So I told you, like, I had really strict parents. So the things that they talked about, I related because I struggled through the same thing. My identity. I struggled with who I was. Where do I belong? relationships lord did i struggle through that (laughs) (laughs) notes for that music for sure the coolness factor okay like yes yes rolling up in like really baggy clothing and so there was a coolness factor you know did you wear the latest timberlands and also the element of relating to them i connected more to that music because i saw myself and in their stories so it was more connected to me that way, especially during that time as I was experiencing a lot of different things as a teenager. Yeah. So I would say those are the two biggest things. When I talk to other Filipinos about was there a period of time or do you continue to kind of fully immerse yourself in Black culture? Those are the two things that come up a lot. Is coolness? Yes, for sure. In the 90s, certainly it was very cool to kind of have all that swag, if I can kind of call it that. But the other is really about trying to find our minority voice in terms yeah. of the popular culture. Like the grunge movement, it was just something that it was harder for me to relate to at the time. Could I map myself onto it? It was a bit more harder. In fact, it was a lot more harder. Can I just jump on the fact where you brought in grunge into cultural appropriation? Because I've sort of hedged on this and I was thinking about this. So even though I said whatever, there's only a, a couple people that were Filipino in my high school or whatever, I knew and understood that or whatever, there's a lot of cultural appropriation with the black culture with the Filipinos. And in high school, I wanted to go the opposite direction because I remember someone said, oh, what do you listen to? And they're like, oh, do you listen to like Boys to Men and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, for some reason, I want to go the opposite direction. And I talked about this in the podcast earlier in the first season where I purposely, I went into alternative music, whether it was like from Weezer to Nirvana and all that stuff. And right, I would wear right, the plaids right. or whatever. Because I was like, 
we're not just listening to that type of music, which I totally, in my head, I'm just listening to kids. I used to listen to WBLK 93.7, and I would still <laughs> love that. Not that I wasn't trying to embrace it, but I was like, no, I like alternative music too, not just like dance or not just like R&B. And I remember just being like, I'm not just that. I like other things too. It just triggered me from saying, I'm like, I did, I thought it was cool. I thought that I sort of agree with Reggie, like that music was great and you were so into it. Adopting the style, the speaking and listening and with the explicit lyrics. Yeah, it was a little crazy. But I remember just having a little bit of an edge where I didn't want it to be pigeonholed that we sort of paired to that culture. I was just like, no, I also like this. And it was just a little bit of a an about face with that. You know, you just raised a really interesting point. I think minority voices like ours we'll look for other minority voices so that we can sound like a chorus. And if in the Niagara region, the minority chorus was the counterculture of grunge, Mm -hmm. I can see that. I remember being at Trent University in Peterborough in and around that time too. And it was just, that's all that was around me was grunge music. I mean, it was the first time I ever heard of Sarah McLaughlin, not that she's grunge or anything like that, but she was alternative. (laughs) Yeah, she was alternative. And then lately I've been, when I was back to the Philippines last January, it was interesting, like talking to my nephews about kind of, indie folk Filipino music. And it's like, what is that, right? Like, tell me more about that. I think the point being is this is that a really close approximation to responding to majority culture. So I had like a roommate at Western who was totally into menace to society. Mm -hmm. And it was all about because the messages in that movie and the music was all about kind of responding to the majority culture. And that's why he could identify it. You look like you're going to say something. Yeah, I totally forgot to say one key word. So the 80s babies that were going through this at the time, something really important. It was an era where we also started to find ourselves and started to rebel. Right. This is a big point because, again, like a lot of us were suffocated, so to speak. So culturally what was happening was we were rebelling in unison. Picture suburbia. Yes. Perfect Mississauga peoples, right? (laughs) I was in a kilt. And you know what I'm saying? Like, finally, it was like a way for me to be real. And like, I know that obviously we didn't like grow up with guns and stuff like that. But I mean, it was nice to be real. And I think real is the best word I can come up with. Like I would say, if you're looking for a reflection of yourself, in popular culture at the time, black culture certainly was it. I contrast that with my nephews and nieces right now. I really pay attention to what they're paying attention to. They're totally into K-pop. Like these are 16, 17, 19 year old K-pop and J-pop. My oldest nephew pays a lot of attention to Japanese pop. They know the Japanese words. I have a feeling that they're going to be better at speaking Japanese and Korean over Tagalog any day. (laughs) You know, when I ask them about it, it's because they locate themselves and map themselves onto. So we can see kind of like maybe that the reason why, you know, we may have appropriated black culture is because it's, it's the best representation or equivalence we can find on the pop culture landscape. Listeners, what you can't see is Richie nodding her head along with me as I kind of say this. So I I don't know if you had anything more to say to that or add to that. No, that's exactly it. You nailed it. We identify with at this point in time. At this point in time. Yeah. And then when I look at the current generation, of course, they're gravitating to K-pop. And not only just from a physical point of view, I I remember asking my one nephew about, well, what's your favorite K-pop song from Twice? He was like, oh, feel special. And he he just started to tell me how we could relate to it and map onto it and what the lyrics meant. And I was just like, oh, my God, there's so much depth here. And it reminds me kind of like the depth that when I listen to R&B music and like the layers of love and heartbreak and sorrow and stuff like that. Oh my gosh, much to say about this. I think as we start to kind of close off this episode, I think the one thing though, in as much as we can map ourselves onto Black culture, because we can kind of identify being allies with them around the oppression that they have felt, I think it is always important to kind of make sure that we're not feeding into colonialization in some ways, and that appropriation is can be a form of colonialization where it fetishizes or eroticizes that minority experience. Parts of these cultures that we may borrow, we really need to recognize that they come from like a a collective intellectual property rights point of view. And I think in terms of affixing, what it means is is that we just got to recognize the meaning of what you might be appropriating and or borrowing and not to forget to pay tribute 
to the original creators and the meaning of it. Like I can see listeners, Richie's like, yes, that's it. That's exactly it. Like I think we just got to remember to use it appropriately and in the way that it was meant to be used and to not trivialize it so that we end up slumming or exoticizing or fetishizing stuff. You know, like when I say girl, right? Like I know I'm borrowing that from black drag queens. Mm -hmm. I just got to be mindful about that kind of stuff and know that, oh, this is what it means. When I'm saying girl, it means this to another gay person, but more specifically a gay black man, you know. So I don't know if you guys have anything that you want to say to that before we just kind of end off this wonderful episode and as we end off our Back in the Vault Month episodes. I have a very, like, after, thank you for inviting me. This episode has brought so many good things into my heart. Mm. When you think of racism, it's a very overwhelming topic or it's a very overwhelming thing. And it's very scary to think about. And like, so I think one of the things that I wanted to say, which is very important is as much as it's a very difficult thing to unravel or to face, there are such simple things that we can do in our lives, positively impact it. And a lot of people like it, when it becomes too big, people disconnect from it and they just like give up. Yeah. That's right. And I want people who are just to think about, there's opportunities for us to actually make a difference. I have two big things that I have in mind. One is wherever you can be vocal and support the movements, whether it's like being, don't just say like something, show your support by supporting it openly and sharing your own story that's connected to it, but being open to it. Don't just like something. That's only part way, I think. And then two is if you're in a conversation, something so subtle, you're with friends or you're out with coworkers, or sorry, you're not out anymore. You're just talking to coworkers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if there's someone that says a racist slur or a racist anything, I think we have the opportunity to vocalize our opinion and stop it. Agreed. Absolutely. And I think even if it's just a question that makes that other person like think twice about what they said. I think so. Those just really small ways that I feel like we can still make a difference and help in, in our own life or in our own way. So number one, supporting. Mm-hmm. And number two, if you hear it, stop it. I think the term you're looking for is a slacktivist. Someone yes. just simply liking something and then just not doing anything more. I think those are really good points. Yeah, sustained action. The fixing of mm-hmm. the week. That takes us to the end. So thanks. Uh, start taking us out. Rechi, I want to give you the opportunity to share with our listeners your website, social media accounts that we can put in the show notes and how people can know more about you and the things that you do. Way to reach me is definitely through my own personal Instagram, which is richie.valdez, R-E-C-H-I-E dot B-A-L-D-E-Z. And then my website basically tells my life story, which is www.richievaldez.ca. Awesome. And listeners, we would like to hear what your favorite black heist film is. You can email us at hollowhollowpopculture at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. Our handles at hollowhollowpop and our Instagram handles at hollowhollowpopculture. And Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. So rate us, review us, leave us a message. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chel Turing. And we'll see all of you guys again soon. Rishi, thank you so much for being on with us. We come hope back. you come again. Please come, come back. back. Come back. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun. I really, um, I actually appreciate this time. Um, this is what I call me time. So spending time with is my me time today. Oh. <laughs>